You're listening to The Whole Truth, a Resources Rising Stars podcast. Hello, and welcome to this edition of The Whole Truth podcast. I'm Paul Armstrong from Reed Corporate, and joining me is Hedley Widdock. I know some of you know Hedley, but Hedley is the investment manager of the Lion Selection Fund, or Lion Selection Group as it is now. This is an episode of the podcast with a bit of a difference. It's being recorded uh, live before a studio audience. Um, so it sounds a bit like happy days, doesn't it? Live before a studio audience, which is, I suppose, is a bit appropriate, mate, because Headley is a bit like the Fonz. He's, he's, the, he's the Joe Cool of the, uh, the investment game, you might say. So it's probably a good place to get started, Headley. Uh, are we in for happy days as investors? Well, I think I am, Paul, but I might not be speaking for everybody there. Um, but thank you for comparing me to the Fonz. I appreciate that. Uh, the haircut is probably the first thing that you notice as being very, very similar. Um, but good, good to be back amongst this group. Uh, I look around now and I think I recognise just about everybody. Um, ha- I can't remember how many times I've been here now, but I think the first time I came, we sat up in this room and we had a very similar gathering around the table and uh, t- talked about a few themes that we um, uh, will probably pull out in the presentation that I do in a couple of days, but uh, there's a lot which we can explore here as well, which I think is um, a great place to do it. So thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for coming along. And it's probably worth just reminding everyone that the reason we're having this chat now is because we're on the eve of the Resources Rising Stars Conference. This is the 20th anniversary of RRS on the Gold Coast. I think, Hedley, you've been to plenty of them, if not most of them, and uh, delivered keynote speeches along the way. Uh, people are always fascinated to hear what you've got to say, and you're very famous for your clock, and I'm glad I said that very carefully. Uh, um, but You, you but do some, have to slow people, down when you say it, don't you? Some people are taking it the wrong way. It's, it's the one with... The big hand on it. In fact, it's got two hands on it, hasn't it, Hedley? So no, this one's only got one some, hand some, on it. Some of, it, some of our guests... It's a one-hander. Some, some of our guests clearly need their minds cleansed. But uh, we're talking about the investment clock, aren't we, Hedley? We are. And we uh, are. So whereabouts are we on, in, on your investment clock? Well, the, so the clock that we're talking about is... Uh, it's a concept which was pioneered by my father, actually, uh, in the late 80s. And uh, he, he, I think, pioneered this in order to explain the cyclical nature of the mining investment uh, sector. Uh, mining is far more cyclical than just about any other sector in the market and the reason for that is the mining sector needs to constantly reinvest in itself um, in order to build new projects, keep looking for fresh life and that requires money. Sometimes that's generated by cash flow, you mine something, you sell what you've mined uh, and you can reinvest it but other times it needs to be provided by the market. In fact I think what we know about mining is that it's constantly provided by the market and topped up by its own cash flow. Uh, so when the market's not providing it, prices go down. When the market is providing it, prices go up. So the clock is wound on liquidity, money coming into the market or departing. Uh, when I spoke here last year, uh, I put the clock at just past 11. And what we've seen in the almost 12 months since, uh, since the 19th edition of uh, Resource Rising Stars has been a, a, an absolute um, uh, falling away of liquidity in the market, which is most noticeable at the small end, the juniors, the microcaps, and this is across the market, but the biggest sector of microcaps by number is the exploration sector, particularly in Australia, and that's where we're feeling it. Now, if you look at the share price of something like BHP or Rio Tinto, it doesn't scream crash, but what it says is volatility because those things are going sideways. Um, If you look at anything which is in the small resources index, they're starting to teeter, uh, and if you look at anything which is an explorer, the last six months have been horrendous in terms of their share so, price. So you're saying that history does repeat. S- split ends were wrong. <laughs> it does repeat. 
And, uh, but that creates opportunity, doesn't it? it if if uh, things have been falling away, that's when uh, the opportunities arise for investors who are prepared to swim against the tide. Absolutely, yep. And, uh, well, I suppose one of the things that um, my father is very fond of saying when it comes to trying to pick these turning points is um, the top is going to be, you know, it's going to be great fun, optimism everywhere. You think back to 2022, think back to 2008. It's easy to look at a top in retrospect. Um, it's the bottoms that you've got to worry about. And he says, people who pick bottoms get smelly fingers. Well, there you go. See, look... Uh, they take, they've taken that all, all the wrong way so, again, Heli. We've, we've clearly got a problem with our live studio audience. <laughs> well, the, the learning of that is uh, you, can't, you can't always be saying, right, we've had the bottom, let's, let's invest heavily. Um, and the way to play this cycle is it's heavily down and softly out. So when you're seeing liquidity fall away, it's a great time to be starting to assess. And, uh, and, and I mean, for a fund like us, we're doing due diligence at the moment. I mean, we're working harder than we have on new opportunities for a very, very long time. Uh, and we're, we're, we're highly liquid uh, on that basis. We sold out as the market was reaching its top. Um, I, I'm not gonna claim brilliance there because opportunity was a big part of it, but uh, we've got almost 80 million bucks. We've, we've shed a fair bit in terms of dividends recently. And that money is all earmarked for new things. And we, uh, we update watch lists every month for the board. There's about 15 things on that at the moment. I wanna flesh that out to closer to 50. Um, but every month the prices of those companies are going down. Uh, and that's been for the last six months. They were reasonably robust before that. Seemed like they were going up and down. So this opportunity, I think we're, we're, tr we're on the trend at the moment. I, I can't say we're anywhere near a turning point and, and that might only be evident in hindsight when you see the moment, but um, it's, it's preparing for that. It's fine to invest before it, but just be mindful that when things are going down, they can sometimes get worse and worse and worse, and it's very difficult to see where the bottom will come now, from. Now, there's those who say that everything in life is determined by interest rates. They make and break marriages, families, businesses, and, of course, share markets. Uh, let's have a look at interest rates. The market's factoring in the idea that <coughs> rates are going to be cut later this year. Do you think that's pretty ambitious? I think if we have a recession between now and the end of the year, they'll start to be cut. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty poor economic commentator uh, and I boil everything down to fairly simple cartoons, hence why I'm such a fan of a clock that my, my father thought was a good idea 25 or 30 years ago. Um, when I look at long-term charts of interest rates and economic events and inflation, um, when inflation spikes, interest rates spike. Inflation comes back down either because interest rates have gone up or there's a recession which happens on the tail end. And, and that will be quite, quite... So I don't know whether it's recessions or interest rates that bring inflation down, um, but, but they both seem to coincide in time. So I think the chances of having aggressive cuts in interest rates are pretty slim. Um, the, the commentators I follow, uh, and I mean, if you look at things like when does the oil price, the US dollar uh, and interest rates all, you know, if they're coinciding, then that tends to support inflation rather than take it away until such a time as people stop spending. So inflation undoes itself. And that kind of takes interest rates out of the, the argument for me. It's more about what's happening in the broader economy, i.e. a recession. Um, so I, I, I tend to think that we need to see a change in behaviours before we see a change in inflation, which means if that's tied to interest rates, then that's probably what we're looking for. So if you believe that there is a, a change in behaviour coming and those, there's an argument about whether it'll be a hard landing or won't there, either way, there's a downturn, that's got to be good for gold, doesn't it? Gold is a byproduct of yield. 
I think it's a, I think it's a fabulous environment for gold, yeah. Um, we, we're getting a bit... Someone must have held up the, uh, the laugh sign at the back there. Uh, the, the, um, the thing I think about uh, inflation and interest rates uh, is you tend... To, perhaps, perhaps if you're looking for a threshold on interest rates, you almost need a 1% gap. So if inflation's 5%, does, it, does interest rates need to be 6%? You know, so you need about a 1% real yield um, in, order to, uh, in order to get on top of the inflation. And as inflation goes, then you know, maybe that's what it needs to adjust to. Um, now, gold, gold tends to trade very strongly when real rates are very low to negative. So when you're trying to catch that, which means that you know, as you're going, uh, real rates remain negative, that's when gold tends to perform quite strongly. Um, that's the fundamental. I mean, what happens as gold trades through that fundamental is that you get more and more believers. And gold is a market which is driven very strongly by believers. So, uh, you know, when your average Indian farmer decides that he needs to go and buy some gold, he's price insensitive. It was rather friendless RRS last year, I remember. You know, gold was very much out of fashion. And uh, I know gold companies were, were working hard to try and win friends at the conference last year. There's been a remarkable turnaround in sentiment, hasn't there? Oh, it has, yeah. Well, and in that time, there's been a fall away in sentiment for quite a few other things. You know, they, they might not have fallen off the face of the earth, but it's difficult to sell gold when lithium is red hot. Um, lithium's come off the boil a bit, copper's come off the boil a bit. Uh, so when the fundamental for gold starts to stick its head up and it firms in price, that's when the believers start to start take no, notice of, of how that's performing. And, and I think that makes it easy to sell a gold story as well. Um, it's, it's difficult to sell your gold story no matter how good it is if there's 10 other lithium stocks in the room and no one, no one cares about the drill hits. They just care that they're into lithium and they want to buy that because it just tells you they're distracted. So, yeah, I think now's, now's a good time for those gold companies to be... So the question flows from gold interest rates essentially into copper, doesn't it? I think there's not a day goes by that we don't hear more and more stories about the huge deficit in copper that is forecast on the back of the, the EV and battery boom and the like. Uh, just not enough mines around the world. It's, uh, it's widely tipped to be the, the metal of the next three to five years, uh, but the market will front-run that, won't it, as is its want. So when do the copper bulls get to be proved right? Well, maybe the market is front-running it at the moment. Uh, I mean, when, when I worry about what economic conditions are approaching, copper has been a reasonably good indicator of that uh, in terms of future economic activity. And it's not running hard. It's running the other way at the moment. Um, but the fundamental you refer to is an excellent one for the medium to long term. Uh, and copper is, you know, I like the fundamentals for gold, but I love the fundamentals for copper because it's reliable. You know, we know from the last thousand or more years of history that copper demand doubles roughly every 25 years. And that's certainly the case in the last century. Now, if you think about that, it means in the last 25 years, the world has consumed more copper than in the entirety of history before that. And in 25 years' time, we'll probably look back and quote a similar statistic. Now, some of that will be made up by recycling, but to this point, it's been more native production than any other form of uh, supply into that, into that demand. So copper is a fantastic place to be. It's very difficult to substitute. The difficult part about investing in copper is, um, do you really want to stick it under your bed? Uh, gold ingots are nice and compact, but uh, if you've ever tried to lift a, a copper anode, I mean, they're, they're bloody heavy. When they get driven down the highway, I used to work at Olympic Dam, so you'd see all the products, well, except for the uranium. Uh, I don't know when that left, but it must have left in the middle of the night. The gold would go out in the boot of a Corolla. That was the legend. The only way you'd tell was these two big burly islanders who were driving it who wouldn't normally fit in the front of a Corolla. 
Silver went out on the back of a truck. No one's going to steal that. It's too hard to run away with. Um, and the copper would go out in sheets that are this thick. I'm, I'm holding up my hand with uh, my, my fingers about an inch and a half apart. The copper goes out in, in sheets that thick that are laid on the, on the flatbed of a truck. And you can't, it's almost as if the truck is empty. They're that heavy. So you can't put it under your bed. You need a warehouse. Uh, so people tend towards the equities in that case. Um, and that's... That's what makes uh, copper such a wonderful place to invest in equities if you can find the right project. Uh, you mentioned the L word, lithium, and we couldn't have a chat about the market without having a talk about lithium. You were right. This time last year, it was red hot at the conference. It was undoubtedly the, uh, the metal of choice here among investors last year with good reason. It's had a bit of a bumpy ride of late, but I see there's commentary in the last two or three weeks along the lines that it's bottomed. Uh, it's an opaque market, you'd probably say, wouldn't you? I would. So, has it bottomed? Well, you know what I said about bottoms before, I, I Paul. knew you were going to go there. <laughs> I knew I didn't choose my words carefully there. <laughs> I, I, firstly, I, I'd like to uh, thank you for starting your question by telling me uh, that I was right. I can't remember what I was right about, but um, my, one of my wife's pet phrases when she asks me a question is like, are you right? And I always respond with, I'm always right. Uh, it's surely I'm, a rhetorical I'm not question. sure that she'd agree with that. Um, Lithium is an incredibly opaque market. Uh, it's sold in a variety of ways, but um, it's also a market where the price which a consumer is prepared to pay for an X-Mine product can be severely affected by uh, short-term swings in how much supply is coming to the market. Uh, and if that swings from uh, oversupply into undersupply, um, it, it favours one side and it swings back very quickly the other way. So we've seen... I think since 2017, I mean, you've seen three turning points in the lithium price. Um, it's been abrupt in each direction. If you'd picked the, the bottoms and the tops there, you, you wouldn't just be a billionaire, you'd be a gazillionaire or something. Now, where lithium's going from here, it's incredibly difficult to predict because I could make a prediction by saying, well, the market's tight, uh, and for that reason, it, it will continue to tighten. Um, but you add one more project to that, and there are lots of projects coming along, and all of a sudden it's not tight anymore. Uh, it goes into oversupply quite quickly. That's, that's the size of the market we're dealing with. Um, and, so, and there's a lot of sort of fudge product along the way. The six-ish percent that Pilbara uh, produces and sells is a, is a wonderful concentrate, so they get their price for that. There's people selling DSO, uh, and as long as someone's selling DSO, it tells you there's ample... Uh, demand in the market and there are people who are scaring the earth for that stuff that's all got to disappear um, before you, you really see a proper tightening and it, and it starts to affect the the six percent market even more so you can look at EV sales you can look at all the trends for for what could be happening um, that could be disrupted just as quickly by a new technology for batteries and lithium isn't the only game in town it's it's the current game and I think it's a very strong game uh, but there's still a few questions to ask about it. So you get the lithium pundits now who argue with people about lithium recycling and things like that. And I think that's, that's a bona fide question uh, that, that needs to be answered. Um, there's a father at my footy club who I think he just likes arguing. Um, he, he, he only just found out the other day uh, that I work in mining investment. And he came up to me wearing a Sea Shepherd hoodie and I was expecting a question about coal or some sort of shirt front on that basis. And he said... How are you going to recycle all those lithium batteries? Like it was my problem. Um, and now I don't know the answer to that, but uh, this is starting to creep into some of the commentary there. So, you know, uh, I, I think that lithium has a very, very bona fide place in the future economic world. Um, I just don't think that it's going to be possible to see uh, 
so much uh, producer margin consumed by the miners um, over a long sustainable period. Uh, I think the, the beneficiators and the end users are going to want to claim a lot of that back. And we've seen that in just about every other market where a commodity has popped, and it's been a long-term story. It happened in iron ore twice. Um, first the Japanese and then the Chinese managed to master, you know, how do you engineer oversupply? So if that becomes a factor, then, uh, you know, lithium will probably turn into something that has a reasonable margin, but isn't doubling, trebling every year. Uh, so it's, it's difficult for me to say we've hit a bottom, because I, I, just, I just think it's very difficult to pick in that market. Given, uh, I wonder what power, where the power came from to make your mate's Sea Shepherd top that he was wearing, <laughs> given it was probably made in Asia, I suspect it probably wasn't <laughs> renewable energy, so you know, maybe one for conversation with your mate there, eh? I, I, I have asked him that kind of question, but I mean, it, there are people who... How did he get to footy training anyway? <laughs> did his son train under the lights? <laughs> These are, these are... How did he heat up his dinner when he got home? These are people who, uh, they, they live in a world where their understanding is based on their selective reading of the media. Parallel it, universe, it some might people not be facts. call it. Yeah. Yes, yes. So going back to, to the, uh, the EV debate, because obviously a lot of the discussion at this conference this week will be about EVs and, and, and the beneficiaries and other things of it. Oh, two, uh, two words that will probably scare the daylights out of you as an investor, but there's an opportunity there, rare earths. Do you play in the rare earth space? Haven't played in the rare earth space yet. There are some factors that I really like about rare earths and there are some factors which I, uh, I'm, I'm petrified of. Um, the ones that I really like about rare earths is that they're not rare at all, they're everywhere. And I think there's a lot of exploration companies which are demonstrating that at the moment. Uh, one thing that worries me about rare earths, particularly in the way that they're described, is this use of the word ionic. Um, in China, uh, there's a large amount of rare earth uh, material which is produced from ionic clays. Um, there's, been a, there's been a rock which has been weathered. It becomes very soft and it concentrates the rare earths at a, at a layer a certain distance from the surface. Makes it very easy to extract. Um, now, if you know anything about clays, clays have layers. I'm holding my hands an inch and a half apart again. <laughs> it's much closer together in a clay. It's microscopic. To be ionic, the rare earths are trapped somewhere between those layers. Now, you can create a clay in a very similar way and still have rare earths in it, but the rare earths aren't between the layers, they're in the layers. So they're trapped within a mineral lattice, which means to break them out, it's much more chemically power or something intensive to get them out. I don't know what the figure would be, maybe it's 60% of Western Australia is composed of granite, 100% of the surface of Western Australia is weathered. So to me, that makes 60% of the surface of Western Australia available for, for rare earth deposits but I expect that most of those will have incredibly difficult metallurgy. Now, the ones in China have really easy metallurgy. You pump a bit of fluid into the ground, out comes the rare earths with it, and it goes to market. There aren't too many analogues of that. So there's a lot of excitement about finding rare earths, but what a lot of these companies are finding is that the metallurgy is tough. So I'm, I'm really, there are one or two stories around look to be ionic. I'm interested in those. There's also the Linus, you know, the hard rock uh, rare earths, you need tremendous grade to make those work. And there's, there's again, very few of those around. Um, so, that, you know, that some of those are the difficult things about it. What I love about rare earths is that they have this lifelong um, uh, demand story, which is really difficult to interrupt, really difficult to bring new rare earths to market. It's like uranium. Every 10 years, uranium booms. And it's so difficult to bring new uranium out of the ground that by the time that boom has stopped, only one project started. It hasn't flooded the market. There's been an accident. Everybody forgets about it. And then 10 years 
down the track. Now, the good thing about that is that it gives people it who... It looks fantastic, though, doesn't it? You'd have to say, fundamental <laughs> geranium looks to business. Oh, they, they do, yeah. And it, but again, blocked by selective reading of the media in some cases. Um, but both of these things are available for land banking. So as an investor, you think, well, how do I take advantage of the rare earths space? Do I do it now? Or is there a time in the next 10 years where I do it? And I, I think... Um, a great time to do it is when everybody's lost a bit of interest in it and, and land bank them and hold them for another five years until everybody wakes up and there's, a, there's another tightness in the market and the price goes up and you can push that into a new IPO. Now, Hedley, I'm reluctant to turn to the issue of your, or the subject of your clock, dare I say it, but uh, on the subject of clocks, we are running out of time, but it's worth noting that uh, you'll be delivering a keynote address to the Rising Stars faithful this week and that that address obviously will be available in a recorded version uh, online afterwards as well. So anyone who's interested in the things we've discussed here can probably hear you say a lot, a lot more about them over the next couple of days. Your presentation will be recorded there and they can watch it. In the meantime, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, great insights as always. Uh, sorry to put you on the spot on a few things, but that's the name of the game. <laughs> Um, and uh, look forward to catching up with you for a drink over Rising Stars Conference. Thank you for having me, Paul. And being on the spot in a conversation with you is just expected, so I appreciate it. But uh, I'll leave you with three letters to think about. L, X, S, X, in that order. Leave the rest to you. Thank you, Headley. You've been listening to The Whole Truth, a Resources Rising Stars podcast, produced by Resource Media, hosted by Paul Armstrong for Red Corporate. Please note that Reed Corporate does not provide investment advice and investors should seek personalised advice before making any investment decisions.